Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole. Today's episode is all about the best way to help a kid buy a home. Now, really, this could translate to any big purchase. So what's the best way to help a child make a big purchase? Understanding the different considerations, whether it's with taxes or a cash flow or estate stuff, let's explore what that looks like so that you can be sure to know what's the best way, most effective way to do this if this is something that you're going to do with your children. Now, this is based upon a listener question, which is slightly edited for brevity, but here's the question. I am 62 years old and retired. I receive survivor benefits and another income source. Both are adjusted annually for inflation. These two sources of guaranteed income cover nearly all of my monthly expenses, and I'm short maybe $500 per month. My health insurance is covered by Champ VA. My out-of-pocket max is $3,000 annually, and there is no premium. I have two kids in their early 30s. My daughter is in a much better financial situation than my son, and I have about $2 million in retirement accounts, most of which are pre-tax, and about $200,000 in a Roth. I also have about $120,000 in a high-yield savings account. I'd very much like to help my son buy a house by paying for as much of it as possible. My kids don't squabble over money, and my daughter is aware I want to do this, and she's happy for her brother. My question for you is, what is the smartest and most tax-efficient way for me to get at my retirement savings? I would prefer not to touch the Roth if possible. I typically would never dream of co-signing for anyone. However, in this case, it would make sense since I have the intention to pay for the house anyways. This would allow smaller amounts to be withdrawn from my accounts. I would want to pay it off in just a few years, maybe five or so. Certainly not the 30-year process, though. I live in California, and the house would be purchased somewhere in Orange County, with the purchase price likely $700,000 to $800,000. Again, I'm trying to figure out a smart and tax-efficient strategy for accomplishing this. All right. Well, thank you for that question. This comes from Tina. Well, Tina, thank you for the question. And the way I want to explore this is there's three aspects I want to look at this from. Number one, can she afford it? Number two, what's the best way for her to do it from a tax perspective, cash flow perspective, and gifting perspective? And then three, what's the best way to do it to make it fair for all kids? So I'm going to explore these specifically in context to Tina, but I also want to do it in a way where you can see how might this apply to your situation if this is a consideration that you have. So here's just a very brief high-level overview of the situation I drew from Tina's request here. Her personal situation, so it appears that she has stable income sources that are covering all but $500 per month of her expenses. She also has limited exposure to medical expenses, which could be really a a large one-off expense. And on top of her stable income sources, we also know that Tina has $2 million in retirement accounts and $120,000 in cash. So the first consideration that we want to make is, can she afford it? Would doing something like this, would helping her son buy a home, would it impact her negatively for her own financial situation? Well, from what I can tell, yes. And here's the way I'm looking at this. I said, okay, if you need $500 per month from somewhere, because other income sources are covering everything else, if Tina needs $500 per month, that is $6,000 per year. If she's taking $6,000 per year from $2 million retirement portfolio, that's a withdrawal rate of 0.3%. So considering that you can take withdrawals of up to 5 to 5.5% or so if your portfolio is properly structured, this is a very safe withdrawal rate, assuming the portfolio is somewhat diversified. 
So check out past episodes where I've talked about that of how to sustain or how to structure a portfolio to generate higher levels of sustainable income. But for Tina here, it looks like it's not even close in a good way. She's only taking 0.3% out of her portfolio, which tells me, yes, assuming there aren't any very large expenses coming up or assuming there isn't a lifestyle that's about to get far more expensive, I'm assuming those income sources that she has are consistent, meaning that she's in a good position where she could afford to gift a pretty significant amount of her assets to a child, really to anywhere, and not have it negatively impact her. The second question is, what's the best way to do it? So when I'm looking at this, the first question I would have is, what's she trying to do? She says, I want to pay for it as much as possible. Does that mean pay for as much of the down payment as possible? Does that mean pay for as much of the house as possible? I'm interpreting the question as how do I help buy as much of the home as possible? So that's why I'm going to approach this. But that would be my first kind of clarifying question here. But let's take a look at it. Let's say the home doesn't cost me $750,000. She's thinking Orange County. Orange County is a relatively expensive area. So save $750,000. That's not unrealistic. In fact, it might be difficult to find a home that low in Orange County, where I believe the median home price is now somewhere around a million dollars. But let's just assume that is the cost. Now, I don't know Tina's tax bracket, but it's probably fairly low if I had to guess. She talked about a survivor benefit. So if it's a social security survivor benefit, that's not going to be taxed by California, which I believe Tina said she's in California. Part of it will be subject to federal taxes, but not the whole amount. So it is a tax efficient income source. She might also have some VA benefits, it sounds like, and those could potentially be tax free. Again, I don't know enough about the situation, but let's assume she's in a very low tax bracket. Let's assume, in fact, she's in a 0% bracket and she wanted to buy the home outright without touching her Roth IRA. Well, some people might look at this and say, oh, I'm in a very low tax bracket. I can afford to take out a really large amount from my IRA and be okay because I'm already in a low tax bracket. Well, if she wants to do this, and again, ideally, she said she wants to not touch her Roth IRA. Let's look at that. Let's say she uses the all of the $120,000 in cash. Not necessarily saying I would recommend that or advise that, but let's just look at this simply. Let's say to get the $750,000 home, she takes the $120,000 in cash, but she still owes $630,000. So let's assume that she pulls the rest of that from her IRA. Well, that's 750,000 total between the 120 in cash and 630 from the IRA, but that would immediately push her into the very highest tax bracket. In running some very basic estimates, she would end up paying 200,000 or so in federal taxes and another 60,000 or so in California taxes and likely higher because I'm assuming that she's starting at a tax bracket of 0. So if she's not actually in a 0% tax bracket but higher, well, she pulls that 630 and she's left with only 370,000 after paying a combined 41% taxes between federal and state. So you can see here, the more she starts to pull out, obviously this is a significant purchase price, but the more she starts to pull out, even if she starts in an extremely low tax bracket, she's very quickly in the highest tax bracket. So she's still going to be short once taxes are withheld from this. As I run the numbers and run some estimates, she would actually have to pull out closer to $1.1 million from her portfolio, from her IRA portfolio, her pre-tax portfolio, so that after taxes and combined with the cash she has on hand, she would have enough to take $750,000 and go and purchase a home outright. Now, I'm using the extreme example to start to see what if she wants to do this all up front versus let's consider the alternative of spreading this out over time. But right off the bat, we see, look, if you take everything, that takes over 50% of your portfolio. 
and only a little more than half of what you actually pulled out goes to your son's property, the other half goes to the IRS and to the state of California. So probably not ideal. As we're looking at this, it's probably better to spread this out so that you're not immediately pushing yourself into the highest tax brackets. The way I typically like to look at this is I like to look at where are the bigger jumps in tax brackets. So if you look at federal brackets today, it's a progressive tax system, meaning the first dollars that you earn are taxed at a lower rate than the last dollars that you earn. But the brackets are 10%, 12%, 22, 24, 32, 35, and 37. So you see some of those jumps aren't all that significant. 10 to 12, okay, it's a little bit of a jump. Or 22 to 24, it's a little bit of a jump. But 12 to 22, that's a pretty significant jump. That's almost double. Or 24 to 32, that again, that's a pretty significant jump. So those are the jumps that I tend to like to avoid if possible. So as I'm looking at this, and there's so much information I don't have to really fully go through a perfect example here, but my first thoughts are, could you try to give as much as possible while staying in the 12% bracket, for example? Or maybe if Tina was already in the 22% bracket, could you give as much as possible without going out of the 24% bracket? Because then you would jump up big to the 32%. So the hard part is, again, I'm assuming that she wants to pay for the entirety of the house here. This may not be the case. Maybe the sun's chipping in some. Maybe there's something else coming into play. But the hard part is even if you take that 750000 and break it down over five years, well, that's still $150,000 per year, which is still going to push you into pretty high tax brackets, most likely depending upon adjustments or uh, deductions, I should say, in other sources of income. Now, what if you went the reverse here? And what if you said, okay, it's a $750,000 home, we'll put 20% down, which would be one hundred and fifty grand, and then finance the rest over 30 years at 5.5% interest? Well, those annual payments would be somewhere around forty dollars to $41,000 or so per year. But as we look at that, the decision is, do we take one extreme, which is pay for $750,000 all up front, which ends up costing you closer to $1.1 million? Or do we pay $41,000 per year, call it, when you just finance this over 30 years, which pre-tax would be a little bit more, but it would keep you under certain tax thresholds. So this is the way you should be approaching it. And in this case, it might actually pay off to stretch this out over longer periods of time because number one, you're not going to push yourself into as high of tax brackets. And number two, while you're doing that, your assets are remaining invested. So if you pull out that $1.1 million to pay for everything today after taxes, well, not only are you paying a huge amount of taxes, but now you have a huge opportunity cost on what those assets could have grown by for you. That $1.1 million had grown by, say, 8% per year. That 8%, that's $88,000 that you're now missing the next year, in the following year, in the following year, and actually even, even more as you compound it. Now, even say it only grows by 5% per year. Well, that's $55,000 of growth that you're missing the following year, in the following year, in the following year. So as you're looking at this, the further you stretch it out, the lower you can pay in taxes, and the better off you might be if you're able to have your assets continue growing for you. Now, when you ask, should you co-sign? You said, if you co-sign, the big risk there, of course, is the entire loan falls on you if your son doesn't pay it. Now, if you're prepared to pay it all, then this probably isn't the biggest risk. But keep in mind, you must be prepared to pay as if it is your loan. If you're going to co-sign a loan for someone, make sure that you're in a financial position to pay for all of this. So I think that for Tina, that's not an issue because Tina, it sounds like is planning to pay the whole thing anyways, or at least as much as possible. But if you're listening and wondering if this makes sense, if you're ever going to co-sign a loan, make sure that you're in a position to pay the entire loan on yourself if the original payer or if the person's co-signing with you does not pay. 
Now, so far, we've just talked about the financial side. We've talked about can Tina afford this? And we've talked about what's the best way to structure this. There's also another side. Money and lending can make relationships weird. And of course, that's the last thing you're trying to do. You're trying to help your son. You're trying to help your family not do something that creates tension or that start that starts to divide the family. So how do you do this, but also do it in fairness to your daughter? Well, if you went the extreme and you took out the $1.1 million to pay everything now, that would leave around $1.1 million left. So do you view this remaining amount as funds that you would live on for the rest of your life and that your daughter would inherit 100% of it upon your passing? Because if you have everything, say, split 50-50 now, and you take out 1.1 to pay for your son's stuff, and then you pass, well, then the remainder also gets split 50-50, which means your son ends up getting somewhere around 75% of your total assets, and your daughter gets around 25% of your total assets when you factor in that 100% of the first 1.1 went to him and 50% of the second $1.1 million went to him. So this is just something to think through. How do you view assets? How do you do something that is fair to your children. Really, it's your assets. But again, for the intent, I believe here is how can you help support family and how can you avoid doing anything that's going to drive any wedges between family? Now, this is something I've actually done before with clients. And here's the way I like to handle it. Let's assume that you have $2 million, assume it's all an IRA and assume your beneficiaries are your son or your daughter split evenly. Well, if you were to pass today, that's $1 million for each of them. It's $1 million per piece. Now let's assume that your son ends up needing 400,000. Well, if you give your son 400,000 and that leaves 1.6 million, unless you update your beneficiaries, so as mentioning just a second ago, that money is still split evenly. So if you pass today, then it would be 800,000 of the remaining 1.6 million that goes to your son and 800,000 of the remaining amount that goes to your daughter. So total, the son ends up getting 1.2 and the daughter ends up getting 800,000. What's the workaround for this? How can you make sure this is fair if you're giving some funds to your son today or some funds to anything today to make sure it's not negatively impacting the other heirs? Well, what I would do is I would set up a separate IRA. And in this example, name your daughter 100% primary beneficiary of the second IRA. And if you're giving your son, again, I'm just making this example up, $400,000 today, well, slide over $400,000 into the second IRA that you just opened up where your daughter's 100% beneficiary. You still own it, but now what you have is you have one traditional IRA with $1.2 million, and that would be split evenly upon your passing, so $600,000 each, and you have a separate IRA that has $400,000 in it that's set aside, and your daughter is 100% beneficiary on that. So what that means is if you take an approach where, say, for example, maybe you're paying the course of this loan over 30 years. If we go back to Tina's example here, well, each year, do you calculate how much you took out of your accounts to pay for your son's mortgage, transfer that separate amount into an account that's your daughter's, not owned by your daughter, I should clarify, but with your daughter as the beneficiary, so that you still have ownership over it, so it's not forcing you to take taxes out today, but it's your daughter's account should you pass. Your daughter's 100% primary beneficiary on it, so that you're able to distribute things as fairly as possible. So to me, this is the fairest way to make it happen unless your intention is to have different amounts per beneficiary, but that's another thing to think through as you're making a decision like this. So Tina, I hope this was helpful. And for everyone else listening, again, the basic outline, anytime you're about to make a decision like this, the basic framework I would look through is one, can you afford it? So in other words, what's gonna be the financial impact to you if you do something like this? The second decision or the second question is what's the best way to do it? 
from a tax perspective or a cash flow perspective or a gifting perspective? How do you make sure that you minimize any negative impact from a tax standpoint, gift standpoint, cash flow, so on and so forth? And then the third part of the framework is what's the best way to do it to make it fair for all kids or to make it fair for all involved? And maybe you don't want it to be exactly even. That's perfectly fine. Maybe a better way of saying that is how, what's the best way to do this to align with your intentions of how you want money to flow? If you can work through those three things and you can make it work for you, and if you can structure it best from a tax or other standpoint, and if you can make sure that your intentions are reflected in this, then you, you're you well on your way to making a good decision with regard to gifting or providing assets to a family member. So that's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed this or if there's other episodes that you enjoyed, I would really appreciate it if you would share these episodes with friends or family or coworkers. Lots and lots of people get to tune into these podcasts and it's because of people like you sharing these episodes with people you think might want to hear them. So share this with a friend, a coworker. Please leave a review. It helps more people to find the podcast. If you want more information about creating a secure retirement, check out our YouTube page at Root Financial Partners. Thank you as always for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.